0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Book Leads Impactful Books for Life and Leadership. I'm your series host and leadership performance coach, John Jermillo. This podcast series is about getting to the books that have impacted the lives of the people in my network. So these are great leads, people that I've met recently, that I've known for a while. Uh, great leads to great books that have impacted them, left an impression on them to work their business. And in this series, I cover three categories of books. The first book, where they're sharing a book with me that I haven't read second category where we've both read the same book, whether specifically for the series or from our past lives, the third book where I speak to the author and or publisher of the book themselves or itself. So I'm lucky enough today to have Tom Hine, who's an author. And Tom is a certified financial planner and the author of The Balanced Wealth Approach, Secrets to Living Long and Living Rich. He has over three decades of experience in the industry and is the founder and CEO of Capital Wealth Management in Glastonbury, Connecticut. However, what makes Tom unique in his whole is his holistic approach to financial planning. He believes that true success is not just about building wealth but also about maintaining good health so that you can enjoy the fruits of your labor. Drawing from his background as a financial planner and a fourth degree black belt in Shotokan Karate, Tom aims, aims to incorporate health and wellness into his financial strategies. Tom hopes to help his clients work towards their financial gains while also inspiring them to lead healthier and more fulfilling lives. And I was lucky enough that Tom had heard about the series, reached out about being on the series, got to know each other's work back and forth, determined he'd be a great conversation to have. Especially, I love the mix of financial planning, the health aspect, and I've always loved the martial arts. So I loved that he could infuse all these things into one set of tools for his clients and and listeners in areas such as this. So Tom, thank you for joining me.
1: Well, thanks, John. I'm so excited to share the wisdom what I've learned with you and your audience and looking forward to a great conversation. Uh, We'll call this the the Thanksgiving fireside chat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So Tom, to start off, who are you today? Can you just Obviously, I read the bio. Um, Can you just give some insight into the work that you're doing in the day-to-day today with your clients and your business?
1: Yeah, thanks. So day-to-day, if you will, when you put on your, I call it, you know, your daytime uniform, in one sense, we're a typical wealth management firm in that we're guiding clients on their portfolios, helping them do their estate planning, you know, coordinating the taxes with their tax preparer. We're doing the things that we want to either help people in their twenties and thirties build their wealth, which is one one set of challenges. And those beyond let's say 45 to 60 tranches to continue building the wealth, but being very mindful of taxation and retirement. And then there's a tranche of people in their sixties and beyond who already made it to the retirement finished life. And now they got the rest of their life to work on in terms of kids, grandkids, philanthropy, and that area. But again, the health theme Follows throughout all three tranches. You know, for those under thirty-five, it's probably more mental health and wellness for the reasons, mm-hmm. you know, you and your listeners know about the challenges of uh, keeping up with social media. But for another group, it's their physical health and well-being as they're working hard to build their portfolios. I want them to be around to enjoy it. And my favorite expression that clients know me by is, "What good is a seven-figure portfolio if you're six feet under?" All right? That encapsulates it.
0: Absolutely. So Tom, to get a better idea of that, how is it you infuse that kind of mindset into the work with your clients? Do you have, is it a separate workshop? I'm assuming you do it regularly. It underlies the work, but what does that look like? How do you infuse the actual work of financial planning with that, that health guys, that health focus?
1: Yeah, that is the $64,000 question. And I would say, John, first of all, it took me about a decade. I've had the idea for years, but a decade to figure out a weave it in because it's not a natural evolution. But let me just give the audience a little bit of background. So those of us in wealth management often get involved at some point with, let's say, life insurance, you know, disability insurance or long-term care insurance. And what you find is those applications, while they seem a bit invasive, they're necessary, right, for the insurance company to make an actual determination. So even though it's, a, it's really a small part of our business, but as I got through those questionnaires with clients, I realized we were already cruising in the neighborhood of health and wellness because we had to ask those questions and the clients had to answer them to see if they were a candidate for those things. So that's kind of how it morphed over time. But then the big jump came when I saw way too many clients, literally in their 50s or 60s or 70s, dying prematurely meaning before life expectancy of what doctors would call today preventable diseases Mm. and i thought they have all this money saved up and now the husband or the wife has no one to share with you know they got maybe the kids and the grandkids and after having that happen a few times i thought my gosh no matter how hard i work as an advisor you know i can save you taxes i can help you do a roth conversion i can get you uh claiming social security right But none of that matters if you work for 40 years and you die seven years into retirement. So the shift, John, became this. And this is the theme of the book uh, built in. We have a scorecard called the Balanced Wealth Scorecard that when clients do a review with us, if they so choose, we don't force it on them. And it's self-grading. So there's no HIPAA, there's no health violations. We ask them to grade themselves on four areas of financial planning, but more importantly, four areas of diet, exercise, sleep, and stress reduction, right? And the goal there, John, is to tease out from the client what areas they feel they're doing better in, and more importantly, which areas they think they can improve on, right? And so once they do the scorecard, we check in either annually or semi-annually, and again, we ask them to grade themselves. Now, here's the challenge we found. You ready? Like all of us, right? We all think we're above average, you know, and everything. So a lot of people were giving themselves Mm. higher scores. And I said, Great. Now I want you to prove it. Meaning, is there a medical test that your doctor ran? And I'll give you a couple examples for your audience. Not prove it to me, right? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a physician, but prove it to yourself. So a lot of people know I see I'm wearing this aura ring, which is talked a lot about, right? This is really cool technology. I have no financial interest in the company, but like your Apple watch or other things, it will track your sleep data, your heart rate variability, your REM sleep. Anyway, it's all on a, you know, connected to your iPhone. So when my clients say they rank themselves as great sleep quality, I say good for you, but can you prove it with third party data, right? Or maybe you tell me you wake up every day feeling great and that's good enough as well. But I want people to have a, 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 verifiable reason why they're scoring themselves, right? Otherwise, it's great to say that. So that's number one. And number two, pick one thing at a time to focus on. So for many clients, I'll say, if it's your nutrition, fine, reach out to your primary care doctor. So number one is the scorecard. Number two, it's self-scoring. But number three, I want them to have medically verifiable data you know, from a healthcare provider so they know they're making progress for them, and again, it's not to prove it to me, I'm agnostic about that, but I want them to have verifiable evidence on their journey so they can feel like they're making progress.
0: Tom, so what does that look like when people come in thinking they're they're, they're merely gonna get financial advice, wealth advisement, uh, but then you focus on the health aspect, obviously as a benefit to them, to their longevity. What, what's been, What has been the range of reactions from people when they didn't really, might not have expected that they were going to be talking health as well?
1: Yeah, great. And I would say, let's first start with my existing clients, right? The ones I've known for 20 or 30 years. It's the classic Pareto principle, you know, 80-20 rule is that about 80% said, wow, that's pretty cool. And I just want to keep it to a financial advisor relationship, the traditional one. I said, great. And let's go down that path like we've always gone down. But about 20% of the people said, you know, uh, I have dementia in my family. We had early Alzheimer's. You know, we had a cancer scare. Uh, Someone got in a car accident. In other words, the more we teased it out, I said, okay, what did that, how did that affect you? Maybe it wasn't yourself. Maybe it was your family member. And the conversation is generally no more than 20 or 30 minutes. But when we're done, what I like to say is, all right, you want to become CEO of your own health, right? I want to empower them to be more proactive. And I go, here are some steps you can take. And then I give them, we have a website that has all the books that I've read, all by you know medical doctors, um, has my book that on the back of mine will be vetted by several MDs You know that read my book. So I wanna make sure they have a place to go to, like a library of information um, that they can start to look at. Of course, I direct them back to their primary care. And in some cases, There's a lot of doctors that are forming these functional medicine clinics where for a few thousand dollars a year or more at the higher end, you can start to get a deeper dive, right? Deeper blood panel and things like that. And we built a small network in Connecticut of doctors who we refer to. We don't get any finders fees. Mm -hmm. We can actually say, I've done the research. Here's a triple board certified doctor that you might want to talk to. So, yeah, we believe in first doing the scorecard. And then I let them know that it will not offend me if they do the scorecard and go, you know what? I'm gonna take my own journey of balanced wealth. Great, go for it. But if you want someone that can give you feedback and I'll tell you the other end of it, just to share with you, we actually saved our first client's life. One of our out-of-state clients, having read my book, decided to get a deeper dive into her health history. And this is an exciting story. It happened two months ago. She found out this particular client lives in uh, between Texas and California. She found out that she was in AFib, which is arterial fibrillation, not knowing it. For your audience, if they don't know that, doctors will often say that the first signs of AFib can be a stroke, right? Well, we don't wanna have a stroke. So she found out years before there was a problem and they now have a, a program to correct it. So to me, to have a healthy client who had no underlying conditions go and seek out just to make sure that was a win-win, okay? A second one has emailed me information on um, a family member had gone through Parkinson's and I'm getting that to my doctor saying, can you give some feedback to this person of maybe the cutting edge research they don't know they might wanna be on top of. So that's the extreme end on the good side is clients that we've known for a while that trust the process, we're not charging for it, we're simply giving them, we're pointing them in the right direction, John, to take a step further, because when I grew up, and maybe as your, you know, for your generation, it was always go to the doctor for an annual physical, he or she tells you you're fine, but inside your body, your body is giving you signals all the time. Most of them are good, but some of them may be like, hey, there's inflammation here, there's all these things going on, but we were taught, don't go to the doctor until there's a problem right the challenge with that is that problem may be further down the path than maybe more difficult to correct than if you go for a proactive screening so those are the you know those are the things but i do share with people that this is their own journey they have to pursue it on their own they're going to have their own doctors and my job is just to be a sounding board to saying here's a great book to read on, you know, the latest trends um, in functional medicine, or if you're into uh, podcasts on that one. So all we wanna do is be a sounding board, not giving medical advice, not giving direction, but enough that the client can say, you know what? I need to know more in this area. And then I wanna say, here are some resources for you, or more importantly, here's important questions to ask your primary care doctor you might not have thought of. And then that begins their journey. But we focus primarily on obviously the wealth management portion of what we do.
0: Yeah, and that's great for them, where even if they admit, well, that's not what I came in for, I, I appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, even if they, they keep it to strictly transactional, the client service of the wealth management and advisement, they always have that option to come back anyway. You know, you planted it in your head that that's a consideration of yours, that you are a sounding board, that you are doing your, your research on it. So at least they know from the get go that they have that option to come back should their tune change for whatever reason.
1: Yeah. And more importantly, like one of my classic questions I ask. And again, I ask them to ask their doctor. It's always reach out or they might have a family member that's an APRN or involved in medicine. I said, Do you know your vitamin D level. Now, a lot of people didn't know through COVID, a lot of people didn't check their vitamin D level, didn't know they should. But there were studies done in Europe about the correlation between those people that had to enter the ER, you know, for the wrong reasons, and the low level of vitamin D, for example. There might have been other issues, but there was definitely correlation. So doctors were now starting to screen for annually, and I tell all of my clients. Most insurance companies include that, but you have to ask for it a month ahead of time, John, because you know how the doctor reaches out and says, hey, can you go to Quest Diagnostics and get a blood panel, but you want them to check off that box to check your vitamin D level and be proactive about it because if you don't ask for it, it's not included in, in many plans, right? But it, it will be, it's covered, but it's not included in the standard panel. And maybe it may have changed since COVID, but even the last few clients I spoke to, I said, "If I were sitting in your shoes, I would proactively ask for this on my next blood screening." And so I feel like we're giving them value add.
0: Yeah, it's a it's just a completely different world from my parents um, coming up with a young family. It's so it was almost like yeah, you go to the doctor when you needed to, versus now where it is very preemptive, very proactive. There's so much uh, access that you can get online, obviously, uh, vetting information, getting from your doctor and whatnot. But it's amazing how we have all these tools um, compared to generations past. And I mean, we shouldn't let them pass if they're there for the taking. Tom, when it comes to you, your career, how did you start off? Well, I always ask this of my guests, um, got an idea for who you are today, the work you're doing. What did your path into your career look like in terms of whether it was figure about college age? When what were those first couple steps you took into whatever it is field you wanted to go into at the time? And then how did that lead to now?
1: Yeah, thank you. And that's a great—that's part of the journey. So uh, I mentioned this in the book, but the backstory was where a lot of people may have health challenges later on in life. Mine began at birth, so I almost didn't make it. The story goes that I had a bad case of asthma. But what in the 1960s, they call it croup. And Mm -hmm. who even hears of the word croup anymore, right? C-R-E-U-P. Well, long story short, I had to be isolated in an oxygen tent for about five to seven days. Uh, This all happened when I was under two years old. So I don't have any conscious memory, but the body does remember that. So I grew up sort of overcoming and understanding a little bit about asthma. And shortly after my high school career and like lacrosse and all that stuff, I really fell in love with martial arts at University of Connecticut where I went undergrad and MBA and starting at you know 19, 20 years old and continuing for 40 years or more, martial arts was my ticket to freedom. I loved it, trained in it, advanced, went to world tournaments. and in that journey, I had a choice to make uh, many years ago when I was in corporate America. And the choice was work more hours to get to the top. But you sacrifice your health or leave that world and form my own investment firm, which is a lot of work up front, but ultimately leads to more freedom. And at the time, you know, it was not common to walk away from a potentially good corporate world. But as I write about my book, I was giving up or asked to give up all these nighttime workouts in the dojo in martial arts. And at this time, I used to commute either from Fairfield County, Connecticut, down in Manhattan to train under Sensei Mori, one of the most esteemed masters of Shotokan Karate. Or when I was on a project in Manhattan, I used to take number seven uptown and go to his dojo on the Upper West Side. So I was asked, if you will, to make that choice. And it was not easy, right, because we were told work harder, accumulate more assets. But I really listened to my body. My body said, but I'm happier when I'm training, I -hmm. feel better. I feel more balanced. So back in the 19 late 80s, early 90s, that transition happened for me to leave that universe. Uh, And I'm not against the corporate world at all. I'm just saying I chose to leave that to form my own company. And in doing so, I kept my workout regimen of martial arts. I added some yoga. I added some boxing along the way. But that was really got me started, John. The ability, I could have both, right? I could have a nice career where I loved helping people with their money and I still do, but I didn't have to give up the things that I thought made me a better human being, made me a uh, easier person to be around, better for my children. I didn't want to give up that core of me, the essence, which was the martial arts, the wellness, the meditation aspect.
0: So Tom, for you, First, going back to your school, your schooling, just because I'm always curious, what was it that influenced you to go into business and the MBA? Was it family? Was it, you know, your network within your family circles? What was it that that put you on that path?
1: Great question. So like a lot of your listeners, you know, these events happen to us in life. Right. We don't always we can't dictate what occurs to us, but we can dictate our reaction to things. So the biggest one was. When I was a summer internship, so right about my son's age, right, 17, 18, 19 years old, I worked for a company outside of Boston called Prime Computer, which was in, the, in their heyday, they were like a mini IBM or a digital. They were selling tons of computer services to companies around the East Coast, and I happened to work there as an internship. My father happened to hold some stock in that company. So at this time, John, I have no idea I'm going to be a wealth advisor. You know, I know a little bit about the stock market, but I don't follow it. I'm your typical teenager. But one day, seven or eight vice presidents, and this is before the Internet, before the cell phone and all that. These seven vice presidents quit and leave Prime Computer to form their own company. And I came home that day and I said, Dad, I don't know a lot about the stock market, but seven people leaving a company at the high end can't be good news. Maybe you ought to consider talking to your broker. And he did and selling some shares, which he was able to gain a very nice capital gain. Later on, two years later, the company filed for bankruptcy later on, right? Little did I know that being at the right place at the right time and hearing that knowledge and my father and mother used that money to buy a small property on Cape Cod, which appreciated 500, you know, five or 15 times the value just because of that one smart decision. So I would say, John, that planted the seeds in my mind of what it's like to have timely, relevant financial information to make wise decisions. And that probably got my brain thinking, hey, this might be a good career.
0: Gotcha. And then, Tom, was it you was it just you or was it some kind of influence or guidance from someone else when it came to the decision you wanted to make about, listen, do I just grind it out and do the 40 hours or 50 or 60 hours a week? Or do I focus more on the karate and, you know, and then build my own business? Was that kind of you just from the the wisdom of doing the karate and just the focus of that? Or was there some kind of influence from outside? Somebody kind of help you guide you in that decision.
1: Yeah, I would say there were two or three people that were key in that. And I would share with your your listeners, you know, if you believe in, you know, the goodness of the world and meditation and mindfulness, there's a famous quote about when the mind is quiet, the world will show it, you know, show itself to you. So I would say be open to mentors, right? Mentors of all types. And by the way, the mentors can be of any age. They don't always have to be older than you. They can be younger. So I'll give you the three. One was I was in grad school getting my MBA and I was thinking about getting my PhD. I love finance. You know, I love the idea of money, but they said to me, boy, Tom, two things. One, if you're going to go because you had your undergraduate and your master's at UConn, you have to go somewhere else, you know, for your PhD. And I love the Northeast, want to be close to my family. And they said, look, if there's an opening in North Dakota, you know, Idaho, Wyoming, you got to move. And I thought, okay, fair enough. I didn't want to do that. The second thing was you might have heard the term publish or perish in the academic world, right? I love I love writing, but I love writing at my own pace. In that world, you have to publish periodically to get tenure. And I thought back in that era, when would I have time to do all this writing, you know, if I'm doing my martial arts? So those two themes were something I incorporated about, okay, this is probably not the path for me. In addition, my parents were great guides for that. And then the third thing was, you know, talking to at that time, friends and peers. And at that point, financial planning was just getting into its own. It was just starting to become its own. It wasn't, you know, being a CPA. It wasn't being an attorney. It wasn't being a stock jockey. Financial planning was kind of covering all those areas. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, Just at the wave of the beginning of that, if I had this love of finance and a love of health and wellness, why not do my day job and build my clientele, but still pursue my dreams at night? So yeah, my parents, my professors were great. And then basically peers, those were the three sources for me and not all in that order, but they all kind of morphed together for that.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. Tom, when it comes to people that I have on my guests, uh, I'm always curious how who they were as a kid shapes or shows up in the work they do today. I've been fascinated by that. It always comes up. So does it make sense for you? uh, Considering who you were as a kid, the type of kid you were the environment that you were in as a kid? Does it make sense? Not that the path was going to lead you here. But does it make sense? How do you reconcile your childhood and how you were where you were the environment that you in, how do you reconcile that to where you are now and the work that you're doing
1: yeah it's huge john and thanks for bringing that up and for all of your listeners and those that watch you i can't emphasize enough that your family of origin if you do a deep dive and i'll give the audience a benefit of mine that everyone goes through or many many go through some level of trauma at some point in their lives a lot of entrepreneurs that i know were successful because of overcoming that trauma, you know, as a child or a teenager whatever. So number one, that is huge. Mine was the case that my older sister and I had to help raise a younger sister who was born mentally handicapped. So you can imagine today there's a lot of support networks, but in the 1960s and seventies, there were virtually no networks. You had to, my parents had to go and physically meet people who also had disabled children. So hold that thought, right? You call family of origin and trauma, but if you understand what you had to overcome, a lot of those skill sets, John, are then applicable, right? If you call it the arc of your career, they're applicable later on. You just didn't know at the time. Second thing, equally important for me, was I was exposed to martial arts as a teenager, not the same style, not in Shotokan, the one that I'm in today. But it was Okinawan style. My master then, who's still alive today, was against the last team to spar against Chuck Norris's team (laughs) in the 1960s and 70s. So that trajectory is pretty cool, and I mentioned that in the book. So I was exposed to me at the time that my family was going through a lot of trauma because of Amy, my sister Amy. I was exposed to martial arts. Little did I know that would be my saving grace. So, yes, I would say for a lot of your – Listeners and some of the coaching programs that I'm in, you'd be surprised how people don't do a deep dive on what they grew up with. Maybe they had a great family and that's phenomenal and that mm. has its own benefits. Maybe they didn't have the ideal family, but they haven't done a deep dive on, well, what did I learn from that? What skill sets did I have to develop, like self reliance, independence, and all that? And to me, if you get a handle on that early on in life about what happened to you, Good or bad, you know, in your childhood, and the more you're conscious of it, boy, that can give a huge springboard for you to go, "Wow, I'm really good." And I can just share one of my one of my mentors and strategic coach called Dan Sullivan. You can look him up; he's got podcasts galore. But he talks about he goes, "Who you were at six, seven, eight years old—that's who you really are. You know, who you were as a kid, and you don't know it." So the last thing I'll share with you, John, you'll appreciate. What games did I love as a child? And this is a subject for another book I'm going to work on someday. I loved Monopoly, right? No surprise, got involved with money. I loved Risk. <laughs> Remember the game of Risk where you had to figure out yep. how to allot your armies? And I loved also the game of Life, right? Life was where you go around the board. It says, have a family, yep. get whatever it was. So think about those three childhood games and there were others too, but I love those. And looking back, It's no surprise when you look at monopolies about money, right? Risk is about risk, which is the stock market and life is about life. It's no surprise. That's hilarious. Aggregated. (laughs) So one of my books will eventually be about childhood games and how they can shape our future.
0: Uh, It's a great, uh, that's a great concept for a book. And, um, Yeah, that plays beautifully what you said about I think you said Dan Sullivan and he's saying his saying, you know, who you are at five, six, seven is who you are. That's it resonates with me because I have so many clients where when they're frustrated, when they're down, when they're discouraged, it's because they've given up somehow on that passion that they had, that childlike wonder, that awe that they have for life um for for what they want to do for their family whatever you know like you said you had the same kind of situation where you're like okay i can i can do the rat race i can take that script i can follow that script through or i can stick to what i'm fired up about Mm -hmm. so most of us don't have that knowledge that foreknowledge that you had to to that wherewithal um And I feel like when they hit their stride, the people that I work with is because they go back and they pick up those pieces that they left behind. They go back and pick up the passions that they left behind. Um, and most of them are about helping people with their own natural gifts. Yes. But there's just something about, you know, high school, college, here's your script, go into it. It's like, you know, the, that mold, that constant mold. Um, but I love that, that idea that who you are at that age, I mean, that's who you are. The yeah. downfall is that you have to go through this chaos of life. And by the time you do end up in this happiness, this clarity is because you've come full circle. You are that person again with, you know, a different environment around you. you you have your career, maybe you have a family, but it's like who I am now, right now I'm, I'm most at peace in my life right now. And I'm I'm it's amazing how many of the lessons, how many of the thoughts that I have trace back to the same way that I thought as a kid. But you're always thinking that you have to go out there to find what is you. Meanwhile, you know, you're literally sitting right on it.
1: Right. A lot of times, too, if you're able to reflect on what were the most fun things you did as a child, you know, everybody might think, oh, it's the same thing, you know, birthday parties, bowling, whatever. No, no. If you drill down. Like we used to play hide and seek. We love that in our neighborhood, right? We had
0: 30 kids.
1: It was the baby boom generation. And I wrote a short story years ago in college about it. But I remembered it was all summer long. I mean, these games, John, would last for hours. And I realized, again, life changes. I don't, you know, it's not done anymore. But boy, what great social interaction. We knew which kids were the fastest. You know, for me, it was George and Jimmy you had to spot them before they tagged the goal, right? <laughs> yeah. Or we knew uh, which, which like the girls were great at hide and they'd find these like amazing, we used to call them like the sniper hideout. You couldn't find them, right? So looking back, we played kickball all the time. So whatever it is, I look back on that with, and I'm still friends to this day. And I write about it with guys that I play with in the fourth grade. And we still go like, you know, we'll have golf weekends with the guys or whatever, but I'm still friends with them. And yeah. I find that fascinating. So, yeah, I do think, and again, not every childhood was rosy, but there's always these vignettes, these moments. They said, as you said, I was at peace or I had fun or I had joy. And you want to go, okay, what was it about that? And maybe it was, you know, my best friend and I used to go and hike in the woods, you know, and discover new trails in a time when you could do that. Now you got to, you know, you got to be careful if you're going to be alone. But the point about it is, Don't be afraid to go back to that and figure out what parts of that life made you whole. And for me, I happen to be able to combine the, the money, you know, the board games with martial arts. And I would argue that the martial arts gave me the energy and drive to overcome obstacles, but the joy was in piecing together monopoly and life and risk together in a way that now matches, you know, financial planning, which really is all of them. So, yeah, I do think the seeds, for many people on their future ideas my only cautionary tone and this goes against maybe what people were told years ago but i like what the guys on shark take like mark cuban will say he goes the worst advice i heard him say where he says like find your passion and live it no because your passion maybe you can't make money at it right now
0: so yeah. you
1: know it's okay yeah. to have a passion yeah but they always say this and i'm sure kevin o'leary says right find a way to make money first Uh, ethically, of course, right? Find a way to make money. And then once you're making the money, say, okay, is this in alignment with my passion? If it is fantastic, if not chip away at things you can do like I did. So you have your day job and your passion. The reason is do not force people to go follow their passion and then rack up tons of debt. And then you spend a decade, right? That's not a good solution. So I often people will hear people say, well, this isn't, My, you know, the job I'm in isn't the job I love for my life. I go, okay, if I'm counseling a client, that's okay. You're saving money in your 401k, you're paying down debt, but let's launch the second phase of your life. If this Mm. isn't what you want to be doing, you know, whether it's the book, What Color is My Parachute, or whether you do these online things about what are those skill sets that bring the best in you out while you're working at your current job, you can be thinking about that. And today, you know, with Indeed, And all these resume services, everyone's a lot more mobile. People want to find you online so you can kind of take where you are, always start from stability if you can, and then layer on your dream list, right? So I do want to make sure because when I was growing up, it was wrong. They said, find your passion and follow it. Well, one out of 100 might say they made it. But the rest of us, you can't just have a passion and make money on day one. And it's not realistic to expect someone to do that unless they have family money behind them or something like that.
0: Yeah, I thought about that just yesterday, literally in terms of thinking about my kids and what I want for them, that I want them to be happy. And I thought about you know, what is that way in the future for them or establishing it now for them where they have some kind of passive income where it's building so that they have their needs met so that they can pursue their passions. Or there may be instances where, yes, dad, I have a passion, I feel this is my purpose. And I can make money. Now for me, it's never about wealth or success or extravagance. For me, I'm I'm blue collar through and through, uh, son of immigrants. So for me, just a stable paycheck, you know, ability yeah. to save, ability to invest and whatnot. For me, that, that's fine for me. But I, I always thought I've been thinking about that so much. Um, and it, it, what you were saying was, okay, if if you have a passion, you can't just follow it blindly. And I remember there was a book and I was trying to figure out which book it was, where it gives an example of a guy who is reading about Zen monks and he, that's it. That's his passion. That's what he wants to do. He enjoys it, doing it in his everyday, something to the effect of he sells everything and he moves to a monastery overseas and he turns out that he hates it. So that's yeah. it. So the story is telling you not to follow your passion, but at the same time, it's like, okay, you, you can follow your passion with that caveat with due diligence to be smart about it. So I like that idea of just, you don't have to give up on your passion, just be smart about it. Um, Tom, when it comes to you, what does leadership mean to you? What does great leadership look like?
1: Yeah, great leadership um, comes in in many forms, but I would say one, asking the right questions, right? A lot of leaders we think have answers, but the brightest people, and I look at, if you've ever seen an interview with like Warren Buffett, Right when COVID hit, um, I'll never forget. People were asking him great questions, right, about the market. But you know what his most common answer was, John? I don't know. Right. And Elon Musk recently, I heard him on with you know Joe Rogan, and what I whether you like him or not, I know he can polarizing. But I'm objectively looking at him as yeah. somebody who's you know built something and made a dent in the universe. But if you hear there are sometimes and Joe Rogan asks him a question. And there's a very long pause. I thought there was something wrong with my Wi-Fi signal when I was listening to it, (laughs) right? Yeah. Because Elon, really, you're talking like a 10, if if you're listening, 10 second pause. So I would caution all of us a lot of times, John, we don't know the answer, right? And Mm -hmm. I I share with people, it's okay to go, you know something? I don't know. Or I haven't been asked. So either ask the right questions or don't be afraid to admit you don't know the answer, all right? Second thing about Great leaders is we have to know the trends and circumstances of our time. It's no no shock to your listener, right? There's a lot of challenges going on in the world right now between Israel and Hamas and Ukraine and Russia and all these things that have been going on probably for thousands of years, really, culturally. And now we're all we all in a news cycle that's 24/7 have to deal with it. And what I want to say is. Regardless of which side of this you're on, and I don't think of it as good or bad, but there are two views here. You have to know that the environment we're living in now is much more um, volatile. They actually call it, um, there's, a, there's a term for it in these times, but basically it has to do with volatility, you know, uncertainty, um, awareness of what's going on. And those are things you want a leader to know. You want you want a leader to know what are you thinking, what are you showing, and how are you guiding us? So, for classic one, if anyone hasn't heard this, this is caught caught online in a few years ago. It's called VUCA, V U C A, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, right? V U C A. So there's people that have written articles on this from Harvard Business Review on what is it like to live in a VUCA VUCA world because it is volatile it is uncertain it is complex so i think a good leader should have strategies to guide people not answers always right but strategies now what's mine guess what
0: yeah i was just about this health to ask and that.
1: wellness right health and wellness john i don't care whether you're an artist a chef a bartender a truck driver or a ceo we all need our health. I argue I think we need our health at a higher level now to deal with the stressors of modern life right than we did 20 years ago. So that to me, when I tell my team or my clients and they hear me talk about all the time, managing your sleep, your stress level, we all need to do that, especially in a world where things are changing so rapidly. So leaders ask great questions. Leaders are not afraid to say, I don't know, I have to do more homework. And leaders should know the themes of the world we live in today, because you can't be so ivory tower that I tell people, right, go and meditate every day, run two miles, get massages like that's not practical. I've got to work 40 hours a week. I've got kids to raise. So you have to know the environment that you're living in so that your advice resonates with your audience, if that makes sense.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, the first answer you gave asking great questions somebody had asked me when I gave a talk at CCSU last week you know what if I what if I'm talking to somebody what if I'm networking what if I'm doing this or that and they asked me a question and I don't know the answer I'm like just say you don't know
1: mm-hmm. say you
0: don't know but maybe come back with some questions maybe come back with things that you do know about or that you're going to investigate what they asked about to me if somebody doesn't know that to me is not the end-all be-all right. For me, it's the next step. So are they just leaving it at that, that they don't know and that's it, and the conversation ends there? Or are they going to come back with some questions? Or are they going to ask where I can get information? Are they going to demonstrate that they have curi- curiosity enough to say, okay, I don't know, but I'm going to learn it, You know, especially if there is some kind of follow-up point. Maybe it is a boss and whatnot. But are they curious enough to say, okay, I don't know, vulnerable and strong enough to say I don't know, Curious enough to follow up, just to, to prove. Okay, even if I don't know in this moment, I will go out and and see what I can what I can find so that I can contribute to the conversation, if they want to. And then the other piece that you had mentioned uh, in terms of leadership, um, it was such a great point that you just made. I forget the exact phrasing that you used. Um, help me out, Tom. What was like the last major? piece that you were talking oh yeah the the uncertainty the the vuka right um just the i've talked about this several times on this series it's just we're living in different times than our primitive minds can handle you know what i mean like our primitive minds are just about survival now you have this over technical world that allows you to tap into and see in real time a war two wars that are taking place on the other side of the planet um, so when you mention go for a swim, do yoga, meditate, and that how somebody some people may see that as um, an escape from all that. I see it the way you do. Like it may get tension out of your body, but at the same time, it's keeping you prepared to handle all this other bullshit that our bodies are just not meant to take in. Correct. You know, if you think about before technology, I was only meant to absorb whatever's directly around me and my my family, my clan, my tribe, and yep. now I got to see everything, every stressor across the world. So I love that you bring up those two points about asking questions and then just recognizing that there is volatility, but in a manner controlling what you can, staying ready. I've read like uh, David Goggins' book. Um, I've read another book by a guest of mine, Brad Ritter. He talked about doing training that was uh, comparable to Navy SEALs. Yeah. and and I as I read these two accounts I'm like why are these guys doing this yeah you know they're they I know you know goggins was preparing he was in the military but I'm like why are these guys doing this if there's no if they're not enlisted and there's no impending anything coming that we know of yeah and in the end for me it was like it was about much to what you're saying is like being prepared yeah just being prepared and at the same time even though you're not preparing for something specific, there's a ripple effect to the example that you're setting and the way that you train, whether it's martial arts, whether it's running, whether it's ultra marathons, whatever it may be. So I think those are two amazing points that you just made.
1: Thank you. And also, again, I try to think of where your you know, listeners or you know, your watchers might be right now. So if you think about it, there are th- some people that are fortunate enough to have a game plan of life. They're executing on it. They're making progress. Good for you. That group I would share with you, uh, be aware of what's called the gap in the game. Famous book by Dan Sullivan talks about we sometimes incorrectly measure ourselves against what? The horizon, where we want to be, which is perfection. Correct. We, we look forward. And when we don't hit that, we get disappointed, depressed and anxious. But what Dan argues, and it's brilliant, he came up with it. If you look backwards, so I'm going to do a physical move here for the audience. But if I turn backwards to say, where did I come from, John? Right? Where is my journey? When you measure backwards, you realize I've made a lot of progress. Mm. And so the danger for that group that's successful and you know executing on it is some of those people forget to have happiness along the way. They're so hitting their goals, they forget that you're supposed to enjoy it. That's yeah. that's one group, yeah. right? Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. It's called the gap and the gain, and you don't want to look. The horizon is your ideal, but don't yes. measure your success against it. Yeah. The second group, the second group are those that are trying to figure out what that life plan is, right? They're trying to figure out, get a handle on what my arc story, and that's the group that I would say go back to your childhood. What is it you loved? Go back to today. You know, what does you like doing today? But also. Don't be afraid to carve out that special time for yourself. I would argue every day we don't get enough sunlight. I could talk for another whole podcast on the doctors that tell us over the last decade, we spent more time indoors than before and chronic diseases are going off the charts, right? We don't know is is it causation or correlation, but a lot of scientists will tell you there's a lot to be said for not having, you know, grounding. We don't wear, we don't walk on. The earth. And so when you mentioned about historically how we grew up, right, think about what an anthropologist would say, John, is that think about this 30,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, what did we do? We walked to the river every day. So we physically walked. They did what they call like the farmer's carry. We had to hoist things, right, long distances. Our feet were on the ground. They were. We didn't have rubber sole shoes. Mm. And we worked on the cycle of sun up to sundown. When the sun went down, we weren't watching our screens. We were in front of a fire, right? The community aspect. So we evolved in a circadian rhythm cycle that has totally now been thrown yeah. out the window in this 24 7 world, which is no surprise when these doctors go back and when did, you know, cancers and diabetes and all these things, as we start to leave the agrarian world and in this modern world, we left behind a lot of the innovation and the things that sustained our bodies without thinking about it right no farmer imagine saying to a farmer thousand did you get your 10,000 steps in they'd be what's that uh, yeah, they were yeah. probably doing 20,000 steps a day they mm. didn't count them it was just work to them so i think you're right when we talk about leadership is making sure people have their game plan guiding them but make sure along the way that you have this joy and happiness. Not that you're going to have every day be stress-free. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, don't be, yeah. don't be just working for an ideal and go, I'm going to grind it out and not realize that wait a minute, when I get there, am I really going to be happy at the end result? As opposed to saying, I look back on my journey. Have I helped other people? Did I touch other lives? Did I make a difference while I'm trying to, you know, grow my net worth or help my family? I think you can do both.
0: Yeah, again, another two minutes of just solid advice, piece after piece. Um, And the pieces that stand out to me are the ones where you, again, I don't know when it, for me, it was a slow evolution um, where I don't have specific goals anymore. I'm working in different directions. I'm building things up, but I've recognized the power of moments. So for me, these conversations energize me. They're you know, they're they're uh, showcasing my network. They're showcasing the knowledge. They're showcasing books. They're showcasing humanity. They're showcasing uh, community. So to me, it must. I think it was during the pandemic where was like an an aha moment. But uh, again, because I think Before that thinking, it was like you said, you're looking at the horizon, you're looking at that perfection, anything you hit short of that, and you do become anxious or depressed or sad, discouraged, whatever it may be. But if you find those those moments of joy, those conversations of joy, when you're designing what you want to design, like to me, this is a collaboration right here. I don't Mm -hmm. call it an interview. To me, it's like designing a collaboration, a conversation conversation. Uh, So I found, I have realized and recognized that power of just moments and really stepping back. I think for us, that traditional idea of success is, yeah, like you said, just looking forward, aiming for that horizon, following the script, because the script says, I'm going to get there, but then we don't take into account, and this is what you mentioned before, when you don't look at your past, you don't recognize, you were lucky enough to see kind of that resilience as you were going. For most of us, I think it's like, we don't take stock of what we've been through. Right? Until we're forced to really be like, OK, wh- where have I come from? How far have I come? And you turn around and we just don't take that into account because we're we're constantly moving forward instead of turning around and giving ourselves credit for what we've been through, how resilient we've been, uh, what we've overcome, what we've seen. It's just it's incredible. It's incredible.
1: Yeah. And it's a very important we call them mindsets, you know, in our coaching world. Right. You can have. Um, a positive mindset. And I like to say, it's okay to look forward and dream forward. But then I want to tell your audience, but measure backwards, right? Look backwards and go, hey, two years ago, let's say you're in a career you love now. Two years ago, I was lost. Now I'm in a job I love. Well, that's progress right there. If you get up every day and you want to go to work and you're excited and we forget, we think, well, that's normal, but you should. So we like to say, celebrate your successes. So the team and I, as one example, we had such a great year in our investment business on new clients and all. We're going to pick a, uh, I just said this morning, let's pick a UConn basketball game. A lot of us happen to be, you know, UConn, but let's pick a, a men's or women's game. Let's get tickets. Let's take the whole team out and celebrate our success. That's another thing I want to remind all your listeners is every week or every month or every year, you're going to have successes. If you lost five pounds that you were looking to lose, you might not celebrate that. You should. Um, If you made a new friend, if you reconnected with someone, if you patched up a friendship that was rocky, you'd be surprised how people don't look at those as victories, John. Right. But I like to remind them. And that's why when we do our reviews with clients and talk about not just their money, which is important, but what's going on in their life, they often forget to go, you know what? Yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned that that was worth celebrating, and I just glossed right over it. I just figured yeah. it was one more thing. So another important thing as we head into an economy that by all accounts will be a little bit choppier next year, I want to remind everyone, regardless of what line of work you're in, literally celebrate your successes. And what I mean by that is you know, whether you go for a walk with a good friend, like you say, we're in, you know, in New England now, right, because of the time zone difference, maybe you cut out an hour early from work one day and say, we're going to get that one hour of walk in, expose ourselves to the sunshine, the vitamin D. And that that alone, to take an hour off your day with a good friend and go for a walk, you might think, well, that's no big deal. But actually, it's worth a celebration, right? Because you change the script. Another one is, don't be afraid to block off more free time when you can around around vacations go to those places another one might be watching your budget maybe you celebrate you pay down your mm-hmm. credit card debt you're like you know what i knocked an extra 500 bucks a month off my payment it doesn't mean you you know you go and obviously spend that much more but you go how do i celebrate that success because you're training your brain to have the mindset that rather than waiting for some big, huge goal at the end, you're celebrating mm-hmm. all along the way. Yeah. And that's the reinforcement. And we do that with money all the time. I tell clients, Hey, if you're saving more money than you did last year, that's as if your taxes are lower than they were last year, because we made some changes, then you want to celebrate that. And when we have a good year, I do often tell my clients, go and take your family out, right? For a nice meal or go do something because we now have gains in the portfolio. I don't want you to just reinvest them and sock them away for the future. I actually want you to spend them or some of them as a way to celebrate that we had a good year together. So I can't emphasize that enough.
0: Yeah, I think if if, any, if we fall short between where we are now and that horizon, it's like that's what dictates the happiness. Like where yes. am I in relation to that horizon? Where am I in relation to that perfection? More the perfection, because I I see stuff in the horizon that I want in terms of mine is more now energy. Mine is more now about connection, meeting great people, having conversations, the financial side, the family's taken care of. Things are good there. Now it's about building those those other passions. Um, But yeah, great, great, great part of this conversation. Tom, why don't we have-
1: I want to add one more thing, because it's a great tagline, but this also goes along with you know, financial planning and what we do for clients, but I remind them all the time. I say a famous quote. I don't know if it's been attributed to one was Confucius, one was Buddha. I don't really know the source because I have checked into this, but it's a famous one. A healthy man has a thousand dreams, but a sick man only has one, right? So I want your listeners to know that along the way of whatever journey you're on, try to be in that healthy man or healthy woman having a thousand dreams, which is good. Don't be in that, and of course we can't control everything, Mm. but I'm saying the more you become CEO of your own health and your own finances, the more you'll realize that you have a right to happiness, you have a right to health and wellness, but you must be in control of that and don't, don't play the victim and let the world take you on that path. I have heard people say, I can't control this. I don't have enough time for that. Well, ultimately we do. It's about priorities, right? Sometimes we do have enough time, but we're not having the right priorities. So we do something else that may make us feel good for the moment, as opposed to what's the priority to get me where I need to go. And not an easy thing to do, but you want to recognize that because in the end, when I hear people say, I don't have time for exercise or time for doctors or whatever, I go, If you don't take time for your healthy choices, you'll be forced to take time for your illnesses. And then it's no fun, right?
0: Yeah. I just, uh, publishing an episode soon, episode 77 with Cindy Gersh and she has uh, a chronic disease, uh, and it hit her hard, but, and she was in the slumps. She admitted that, but then, and we talked about victimhood, uh, but she said, it's like, okay, I can, I can either sit here, sob, just let go of my life be unhealthy and it hits me harder or I can control what I can get healthier, do all the things that I need to do with medications, whatever I can do in terms of health and do what I can control what I can. So it resonates right with what you're saying. And it's so powerful.
1: Great. Yeah. Because in the end, all of us as said, we all have a different family of origin. We all have a different journey. We're all different stages of that journey. But one thing is true how we react to those stressors, right? How we react and how we process them often determines the outcome mm. of what happens. Yeah. So we can have a tough situation that maybe the the short-term outcome isn't a great one, but you can control your mindset. You can say, okay, this is a minor setback. I'm going to figure a way out of this. Or you can go down that bad path, which is, woe is me. Why do I have this stuff happen to me all the time? And, the more you say it, I don't have to tell everyone I'm yeah. sure your audience knows you reinforce the universe going. If all you talk about is bad outcomes and life is tough, guess what? You're going to get more of. And that's remember the secret you had the guest on that talked about. Right. Yeah. That's been known for a long time. But a lot of people don't spend enough time focusing on what are my thoughts communicating to the world every day? Am I communicating uh, nothing goes right for me and I'm under stress or am I communicating yeah. I'm successful I want to connect with people now. Eventually, enough repetition of the thought will get you the people and places you want. I know Joe Dispenza has done a lot of work in this area. People follow him as well, but you'd be surprised how many people know about this but don't actually practice it, right? And you do have to practice what you preach.
0: Yeah, I think with Angelique, the one the the guest that we in which we covered the uh, the secret, I, I I think it came up in that conversation where it's like, yeah, you can manifest the good. Right. That's what that conversation is about. But you can also manifest that victimhood. Um, And even with Cindy and and another guest, Holly, that talked about her chronic disease. It's like, okay, you can feel you can feel the victim. You can feel the pain. None of this is about being Pollyannish, that everything's going to work out. If you have circumstances that are adverse, less than desirable. You can stew in it a little bit. Right. You can you can be you can be realistic. This is where I am. These are my circumstances. Just don't stay there because then that's when it catches up with you.
1: Correct. And just like investing, you know, we've said sometimes clients have a setback. Maybe a family member passes away or they got to deal with taxes or whatever. But we say that's a one-time event. It's a one-off. We'll deal with it. But don't derail yourself from your long-term plan, right? That's a very common approach. Another one is people will say, I had a bad, you know, interaction with the stock market years ago, so I've given up on it. Well, that's, it's not an all or none, right? It's not a black or white. Maybe you made a bad decision. Maybe you had the wrong advice, but don't give up on it because long-term companies like Apple and Microsoft have proven, right, that staying with it works. So that's an important aspect. And the second thing is, along the way, we want to coach our clients that remember, in the end, you can't take it with you, right? You can grow the money, but you can't take it with you, so either start to create a legacy now or start to make sure you're doing smart things with your money because nobody, you know, nobody wants to be the richest guy in the cemetery. There's no award for that, right? Yeah. We yeah. want you to spread the wealth, enjoy it for you and your family, maybe give. A lot of people don't know the tax code, even today, is very, very generous for people who like to give to charity. Without getting into technicals, you'd be surprised how many clients I tell them, If you give some money away to charity, you can actually reduce your taxes more than you realize. They don't know that. That's our job to guide them. But they'll say, well, I don't have a charity in mind. I go, well, tell me about any diseases your family member had, right? Any challenges soon after five or 10 minutes they go, you know what? Turns out I might give to the Alzheimer Foundation or the Parkinson's, whatever, because they realized they had an aunt or an uncle or a brother that went through that. And now we're saying you're doing good. By helping the foundation but you're also saving your family tax money today right yeah that's yeah. a win-win scenario and those are the ways you want to get people to think creatively
0: yeah that's another <laughs> conversation you can have about legacy your legacy and what happens in general just yes um so tom at this point why don't we jump into your book why don't you introduce your book and maybe just a little story about what led up into its writing
1: yeah thank you so much so the balanced wealth approach is the name of the book and the website just for references, the same thing with a dot com at the end, right? The Balanced Wealth where we have the videos and information about the speeches I've given. So the genesis of the book was this particular client. I made up their name, but let's call them, uh, you know, Dick and Elizabeth. And I'll never forget, I was in my maybe fifth year in the career. So I've been, you know, a certified financial planner helping this client grow their money. I'm excited to do a review. They're up and everything, everything we did made money and they're sitting there looking very glum. So obviously, you know, interpersonal business, I'm like, OK, I'm giving them good news. My reading, you know, my reading of their body mannerisms suggests that they're not happy. So my brain's going, where's the disconnect? So at one point, the wife says to the husband, honey, is it OK if I tell him he had just been diagnosed with stage four cancer? An hour before our meeting, of course, they're not going to be happy, but I didn't know that. But the story resonated with me, John, because the sad reality, and this is not to blame doctors or medicine, this is why I'm saying become CEO of your own health, was that the client himself had not felt well for a while, kept going to his primary care and said, I don't feel well. And this is many, many years ago. So all the, the newer blood tests, the newer screenings weren't available, but doctor said, it's just stress. It's just stress. Well, turns out by the time he went to Dana Farber in Boston, they confirmed it wasn't just stress. It was a lot more. Okay. So it's not to put anyone on on edge about, oh my gosh, every ache or pain. But if you really believe something feels off with you, I didn't want another client to go through this scenario where they didn't feel like they had a game plan. And of course, okay. by this time, they could not enjoy the money I'd made for them because it was all gonna be spent on you know, his, uh, his cancer diagnosis. So that story resonated with me so much in my career that I said, but it took me a decade after that to figure out, well, how do I integrate health and wellness because people aren't paying me for that, right? So fast forward, another story along the way happened not too long ago. Another client of mine said, my gosh, you already made my wife and I enough money to enjoy life, but sadly, because of her um, <clears throat> her diabetes and all, we can't go the places that we want to go to to enjoy them. So that was another reminder that people that were busy working hard, accumulating their money, weren't able to enjoy it for reasons that are, you know, preventable, right? So we now know that a lot more people want to be proactive. A third one. <clears throat> probably the most egregious one goes back a long time ago where a very wealthy client out in Texas worth you know millions of dollars but when i went to do a life insurance review with that person i noticed that all their free time was being spent running from doctor to doctor you know he and his wife and i thought well if you're so successful on the money part why are you running around From doctor to doctor and uh pardon me no surprise you know what it was in order to create that great wealth the amount of stress they were living under to create the wealth and keep up with spending habits that was causing the stressors so it became right this vicious cycle of i'm doing well i want to make more money i want to cut that Mm. next big, you know close that next big deal but the very act of doing that was causing the cycle of the bad cycle of health and wellness. So in the end, we were trying to guide them on maybe searching for that horizon of that super high net worth. Maybe that's not the right goal now. Maybe there's a different goal to get you where you need to go, where you can still make money, but not put yourself under that much pressure. Right. So I think if anything resonates today, it wasn't about It wasn't about everyone's net worth. Some were very modest clients that had a health setback. Some were very wealthy ones. So clearly it's not related to how much money you had. It was related to did you take your own, um, you know, your own control of your own health and wellness early on in life, or did you have the right resources to talk to? And the second thing that I'll dovetail on there is most people spend more time planning a two-week vacation then they, plan, then they plan for their own health. Yeah. So I remind clients that, yes, you should take time planning that trip to Europe, but you should also be allocating time to your finances and your health and wellness and not just think of it as an afterthought, right? Yeah. Because too too many of us get so busy doing what we're doing, we actually forget to slow down and go just the same thing as why do you want to go to Portugal or Spain? And they'll tell you why. Well, yep. why are you working? in this particular career this hard, or why are you saving in this manner? Why are you not using, you know, annuities or life insurance or Roth IRAs? So we want to do a deeper dive into the why, as opposed to just being on autopilot. And as you said, following the script, right? So the book talks about different stories about people reaching their health and wellness journey, but how we interacted with them along the way to get them, further along with their money, which is the most important, but further along on this understanding that you have to be CEO of your own health. And then at the very end, I tie it in with some great stories on mental health and wellness too, because that's become a big concern today. You know, If you're under 35 or 40, that is a bigger threat than some of the physical ailments that are down the road.
0: Tom, so how, and thank you for that breakdown. So how do you structure the book uh, in terms of chapters, what kind of path do you take your reader on? Um, you said you've weaved in some stories. What, what kind of chapters can people find? What kind of path do you lay out for them?
1: Yeah. And I also did an audio book. So if you're into listening in your iPhone, I recorded the whole book in my own voice as well. You know, it's okay. audible, but okay. we, we start off with a story near and dear to me, which is my mother saving my father's life in 1987. And that got me on my journey. I was in the middle of studying for my accounting exam to get my MBA at University of Connecticut. And mom, through an amazing journey, actually saved my father's life. But what did that mean for dad in 1987? That meant he lived 20 years longer. He got to see the birth of my two children and the adoption of my sister's son right from Russia. So what did it do is not just extend his life, but gave him the joy of seeing his grandchildren born. The second part of the book goes into why should it matter to you, right? Why should you spend more time on your health and wellness? And all sorts of studies from Harvard showing that people that spend a little bit more time on their health and diet can live an extra 10 to 15 years of healthy living. That was in the Tony Robbins book that I researched as well, uh, you know, called Life Force. So number one, a story of my own family, my own journey with martial arts. Number two, a story of money, and why does it matter to you? Why should you care about this? And then we segue into the scorecard, how you can rank yourself on those areas of sleep, diet, exercise, and stress reduction. And then the last part follows up on mental health and wellness. And then how do we go, You know, where do we go from here? So it's a journey of self-discovery for me, but for my reader, it's wow, there's so much more to this stuff that I can take advantage of And along the way, if I get an extra 10 to 15 years of, think about this, maximum productivity, right? So let's say you hit your peak earning years at 45 to 55, but you can extend them from age 55 to 70 with good health and regimen. What can that do for your family and your grandkids? Mm. That would be a theme, right? Yeah. One study, one study in the book that I reference, John, that said one extra year on earth of everyone combined adds like 36 trillion with a T of GDP one extra year. Why? Because at 81 or 82, God willing, if you're healthy, you've got all the wisdom of an 81 year old or an 80 year old. Plus you've got time, you know, with kids and grandkids, or if you volunteer your time, you've got time. So imagine five, 10, 15 years, and this is important of peak earnings potential and keeping your stress and you know the levels, what we call the bad biomarkers down, that to me would be something worth fighting for, something worth striving for. So that's Absolutely. a big thing because today more than ever, what are we hearing about from millennials, which is my daughter's one of them, right? Saying the idea of trying to marry, buy a house, which is very, very unaffordable for the average person and raise a family isn't like when I grew up and did that right
0: yeah so yeah.
1: they may have to have families later on now, maybe families don't start at age 28 but age 35 for example but that means that everything else gets pushed back
0: shifted back right
1: shifted not necessarily bad but if that does get shifted back maybe it means that your career doesn't stop at age 60 but it stop at age 70. well those last 10 years hopefully are 10 vitally um, energizing years Not years of slugging it out, you know, punching the clock, trying to make ends meet. It should be years of, oh, my gosh, I've got all the things. Like you said, I've got everything in life I need, but I now have 10 more years of wisdom Mm. and uh, energy.
0: Enjoyment, just enjoyment, too.
1: Yeah. So that's why I want the reader to realize whatever age you are, it still gives you a roadmap of how you want to evaluate your journey. And there's no shaming in the book. We tell people all the time. Every little bit of progress. If you say I'm going to cut out one dessert this week, and you decide that's good for your A1C, right, to lower your blood sugar, that's a success. Yeah, you decided I'm going to cut out one dessert. Or I like to say there's one other thing I want to add, John. We call it the three two one. Uh, for some people, no food three hours before bedtime, no alcohol two hours, and no screen time one hour mm-hmm. before bed. Or if you do have the screen time, wear the blue light glasses, right. We want to do that. So the three, two, one is a common strategy that's adopted in the health and longevity world that will get you a better night's sleep. Okay.
0: The stuff we got to worry about these days, huh?
1: I know. And yet, and yet, what's really cool about it is there are simple strategies if you build them into your habits that you can work on that we didn't have to worry about. When I was growing up, that right, there was no such thing as screen time after seven or eight at night because we didn't have it. But yeah. today it is a challenge because we have so much more access to it, but we can counter that. So I like to say you can live and survive and thrive in a 5G world, but you have to have 5G strategies to keep up with a 5G world, right?
0: <laughs> so Tom, was there a particular moment where or that kind of triggered you into say, saying, okay, now I need to write this book? Did people prompt you to? What was the, the moment or what was the... Um, maybe on and off, people kept bringing it up. What was it that got you to really pull the trigger on writing the book?
1: Yeah, thank you. So even though it's my third book, it's the first one that really veered off. My other two are more about martial arts and business, which was my comfort zone. I would say the third one, this one, the aha moment became, as I was talking to clients and running it by them, You know about this idea, because I always bounce it off them. They, I said, I just can't find a way to always integrate daily. And one of my top clients happened to say, Tom, that's easy. If you write a book about it and you lay out you know, a strategy, then even those clients that aren't ready yet, you can always hand them a copy of the book and saying, when you're ready. And I thought, oh my gosh, you're right. I don't have to bring it up at every meeting. If I write a book about it, it's there forever. It's what they call evergreen, right? Is the yeah. term they use. So it's there. And it does use some of the cutting edge trends. And I realized by getting the book in the hands of my clients or the public, I really have delivered the message of health, wellness, and longevity. And yet it doesn't force people to take the journey today. They simply have access to it whenever they want to take that. And that was the aha moment when I said to the client, and I'm a published author and it didn't dawn on me because the reason is my brain said, I'm not a doctor. Why would I write about this? But then someone said, that's okay you can interview a bunch of doctors and you know and have some help in the publishing world and I realized yes this is worthy of a pro of a project because I can get the brightest medical minds to weigh in on it and attribute it to them while I'm having help on the editing because I'm a big picture writer but I had some great help in the background on the editing so that's that's the journey of how I got here
0: so Tom then another question I was asked by authors is, I'm curious, in writing it, how did your thinking evolve on the topic? How did your mind shift or mindset change, if at all? What what changed inside you or the way you looked at this topic, this focus, as you wrote and, and put the book out?
1: I'm I'm so glad you asked that, John, because what I learned, and I quote now uh, a very well-known professor at Harvard, David Sinclair. If you look him up, he'll probably win a Nobel Prize someday in uh, longevity, But if there's anything I can impart that doctors share with me is that, you know, there's our genome, right, Mm -hmm. what we're born with, and there's our epigenome, epigenetics. And every day, John, and this is true, right after we're done with this great conversation, uh, the sun is out. I'm going to take a 10-minute lap around my building. Why? To get some sunlight. So every day, your listeners and your audience can realize that everything you do affects your epigenome, right, which is your environment. And it used to be, you ready for this? We were raised thinking it's 80 20 the other way. It's 20% you can control your, your genes, and 80% is what you were born with. Most scientists today say it's 83 17. 83% is how you live your life, mm-hmm. how you eat, drink, and sleep. And about 17 to 20% is controlled by your genes, because we talk about the on-off switch. So all I want to share with your listeners is you have so much more control over your life than you realize, and even doctors admit now that what you do on a daily basis, I'm not saying don't run the marathon, right? I'm not saying don't climb that mountain, but for a lot of us, I'm not a marathon guy, I'm not a mountain guy, but I can do, you know, 20 push-ups every five hours. I can walk around my building when the sun is out uh, every hour for a break. So I want everyone to know that epigenetics, if you look it up, you have so much more control and direction over your life than even we were led to believe John, when we were growing up. If I can leave anyone with that thought, every little action you do has an effect, um, on your longevity.
0: Yeah, I, you probably heard me talk about this in other episodes, Tom, but just um, how much we stop ourselves because we we think everything has to be uh, a Herculean effort. Like right. it has to be a big move. It has to be a big goal. It has to be huge progress that we, we, again, it's the same as that horizon. It has to be that far. It has to be that audacious. It has to be that big. But they forget about all the little things because we're impatient. We're insatiable. We want what we want now, especially with screens and everything, shopping and whatnot. TVs. Like my kid's never going to know the the (laughs) the the glory the 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 um, the enjoyment of Saturday morning cartoons. You know what I mean? Like they they just they'll look for something on Netflix. They're never going to understand me waiting around all day for MTV to play my favorite video. They can just go on YouTube. So there's things that we want right away. Um, so that stands out perfectly just because we're, we're just so impatient.
1: Right. And you hear the term, you know, MTP, right. Massive transformative purpose, and it's okay to have one, but just like a marathon runner didn't win their first marathon by starting the day before, just like, you know, the MMA or the champion weightlifter will tell you, I didn't start lifting yesterday. You know, it is a journey of a thousand miles begins with a first step. Mm -hmm. And if every day I like to say this, if you're putting one foot forward every day and going, I'm going to get 10 minutes more sunlight or I'm going to get to bed one hour earlier asleep. Whatever it is that your audience can take action on and you build on that, you'd be surprised like compound money, right? Time value of money. You're going to compound on that over your life. You can have phenomenal, phenomenal results by just starting daily and building those habits. And they don't have to be a Herculean effort.
0: Um, yeah, again, so many great points that you're making. Um, Tom, so why don't we go very, very briefly? Uh, you mentioned your other two books. Why don't you just talk about each of those? Um, again, it doesn't have to be too long. Just I'm curious what year they came, came out. What were they about?
1: Yeah. So thank you for asking. Um, so I also believe, you know, the quote about, when I'm given lemons, right? I make lemonade. So my first book, and this is interesting for anyone that's ever been sued or through legal issues. I was uh, an advisor that got sued by a client after the tech wreck of 2000, where, you know, technology stocks crashed. And this client, um, and I wrote about it, I changed the names, you know, protect the innocent. But I was accused of doing something wrong, which eventually a three panel judge said I was completely innocent. But it took me two years of going down to New York, right? And I had to prove my innocence. And it was exhausting emotionally. But when I got done, I was so proud. I said, I've got to find a way, as we say, to memorialize, right, to capture it. But I wasn't a writer. So what did my coaching program tell me to do? Find a writer. So my good friend and co-author, John Brubaker, a Yale grad, was my writer, and I sat down and told them my story. We did the research together and we came up with um, how to protect your investment practice. But we used the term um, five black belt principles to protect and grow your investment practice because I had then gotten my second degree black belt in Shotokan. So that was a journey of taking a bad experience in life. And then in the end, some great things came out of it. But one of them was that I wasn't gonna hang my head down because I was found innocent you know, by, under what they call an arbitration, but I learned to document meetings better. So after that thing, every single time we have a client meeting, a letter goes out or an email saying, here's what we covered, Mr. and Mrs. Jones. If this mm-hmm. is not your understanding, and guess what? Since 2006 or seven, I think we've had two letters where people corrected something. We've sent out thousands. So we now have a better process that we think, is better for the client, but better for my team. Okay. So that was called the NASD arbitration solution. Cause at the time the governing body, which is now FINRA, F-I-N-R-A, but it was NASD back then. Okay. Okay. So that was one loved it. I did a book tour around the country, made lots of money. And I thought this is kind of fun, (laughs) right? A few years later, as I started into acquisitions and succession planning. So I helped Business owners that are in our line of work and in investments, I help them create a backup plan. I say, you know, the old break glass in case of emergency. If they don't make it home, how does their wife, girlfriend, family get value from their investment practice? Because there are very strict securities laws, John, where, as you probably know, you just can't turn over an investment thing and say, my wife will get the money or my husband will get the money. Because if you don't have licenses, not allowed to earn commissions and fees so yeah i decided to interview the top investment people in the country and how they did their succession planning okay and then i put that into a book called the zen right no surprise the zen of business acquisitions why because i wanted to take my martial arts philosophy of playing the long game right Mm -hmm. and how we can create an enduring business where people could then say I want to create G2, it's often called, right? Generation 2 or G3. So I put that in a book. That one, I wrote all myself. I interviewed and I was fortunate at the time my daughter was attending Georgetown University in DC. I met a wonderful professor who had a coaching program on how to write a book. Uh, Professor Eric Custer, K-O-E-S-T-E-R, big shout out to him. And he guided us and the book launched two months before COVID hit. By luck. All right. Wow. And yet we had done our Zoom meetings and all that because it was a collaboration of people around the country. So that was an aha moment where I said, Oh my gosh, this was so much more fun because it was about a positive topic, right? It wasn't about being sued. It was about how to create an enduring business. And that then a few years later led to this idea of, you know what? I love writing, but I also love health and longevity. And let me share that with the audience as well. So Thank you for asking. They're all there on the website, you know, thebalancedwealthapproach.com. All of the books are listed there, as well as a lot of my interviews on TV and things like that.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. Um, and then I, I should have asked this question in my series from the beginning, but only recently started asking. We're talking about your book here. What's a book that's inspired or impacted you uh, that you could mention? Something that stands out, if you could. Yeah.
1: That's great. There are so many. I love to read, but I'll give you two. One um, was the Tony Robbins book, "The Money Masters," where he interviewed the brightest people on the planet, obviously Warren Buffett, everyone about money habits. That would make sense. But lately, and this I have no again financial interest. I have no tie to the author, no tie to the author. Mm-hmm. But one of my favorites I'm re- I'm reading right now is Peter Attia's book called "Outlive," O U T L I V E, okay. and that's all about longevity. And the things that he teaches his patients to do, I hope to send him a nice email telling him, I love your book. You know, I'm a fellow published author, but what's really cool is he has his own journey of how he brought his own patients along into health and longevity. So Outlive is a great one. And then the Tony Robbins one about about money. Those are two of the nice ones that I read.
0: Thanks, Tom. And just in wrapping up, Tom, is there anything you want to share about what you're up to these days or anything that I should have asked or you want to mention, share with this audience?
1: Yeah, a couple of things. You know, obviously we believe in paying it forward. So this year, my firm donated money to help um, a very well-known um, medical doctor, researcher, Dr. Tim Nelson, out of uh, the Mayo Clinic. And he he's worked on the first autologous stem cell transplant for children meaning for heart issues. So we were honored that we donated money to his cause because he is literally helping hundreds of families around the country in his team, where when you have a congenital heart defect, there's no known equal easy cure for that. But he has worked on the ability with technology and all. So one great shout out to that organization that we were supporting. And uh, he was nice enough to send us a video clip. And the second thing really is, a message to everyone on all the difficult challenges going on in the world. Don't forget, and this is not, and I'm very down the middle on this, John, the news media on both sides, they need eyeballs, right? They need your attention. Mm -hmm. But you want to focus on the good in life. Don't focus on all the negativity because as we say in the stock market, you're going to have bull markets, you're going to have bear markets, but over time, markets do work. And the same thing I want your audience to know is it's okay to be informed of the news, but if you find that it's driving how you feel and it's dragging you down the wrong path, really work on filtering your attention and time to those things that make you feel good about your life. And don't be afraid to turn off certain outlets that just, you know, either drag you down or put you down that mindset. Because in the end, you know, the journey of working hard, earning money, we're heading into the holiday season with family and friends. Let's make sure you focus enough time on that and take time to celebrate your successes, you know, celebrate your friendships. And that's what I think what I call mm-hmm. balanced wealth is all about, right? Balancing your money and balancing your health and wellness. That's the whole point of the book.
0: Yeah, it's such a great point. Um it's one that's come up on here several times over and over. That listen, we we see what's going on in the world. We just discussed this, you and I, Tom, in the last couple of minutes or last hour. Um, it's not to be Pollyannish. Right. We recognize what's going on. Um, the VUCA, right? You're paying attention to what's around you. Yeah. But it's it's again, it's that intelligence to you know if there's nothing that I Im- immediately need to take care of, that I'm going to step away. If there's nothing that I can do, then I'm going to step away. Um, always paying attention. But uh, there is a lot, I think, people kind of forego a lot of control that they have in their lives. So we we do tend to fall to the news cycle. Um, but I love your message just from stepping away from that and just realizing, and we talked about this as well, just like the incremental little ripple effects that you can execute in your everyday Uh, being that change you want to see. I'm I'm more hokey than anybody. I love my my cliches, but they serve a purpose. There's a reason you can say that. Be the change you want to see, right? What Gandhi said. If you don't like the way something's playing out, if you want to offset the negativity in the world, you have a lot of power in your hands, a lot of power in your community. And I think a lot of us just don't realize that. And we leave a lot on the table. So I, I appreciate that message. That's a huge one.
1: Yeah. And also, in the end, if you think about it, the more health and vitality you have, the stronger you are to spread that message. That's true. Whatever you that's want to absolutely have. And that's true. another thing. For those of you, and I've seen it in my extended family, but for those of you that are caregivers, caregivers go through an awful lot of stress, right? Whether it's husband, wife, aunt, uncle, mother, father. So into this holiday season, I want to give a special shout out. But for caregivers, and when I have clients their caregiver, I remind them, you must take time for yourselves.
0: Absolutely. Because
1: when you give too much on the outside and you don't care yourself, that caregivers often have a lot more health issues than oh, yeah. the people they're caring for. And I tell them, because you need to replenish your body. So if you are a caregiver, I know what you're going through, a shout out to that. But more importantly, carve out time, your boundaries to protect yourself so that you have the vitality and the energy to be a good caregiver, but you should also have your own journey of your own life at the same time. So I want to make sure that that gets out there as well.
0: Absolutely. And I appreciate that, Tom. And Tom's book, again, is The Balanced Wealth Approach, Secrets to Living Long and Living Rich. Um, Such a timely conversation just because, again, everything that's going on in the world, um, that mind shift is taking place, that mindset shift is taking place just from generations past to now um I, I see it just in working out more to keep up with my kids uh yep. where as if I didn't have them I I, I probably wouldn't um but I, I recognize just the clarity that I get from working out and eating healthier and and that that's a journey what's interesting about that journey for me is I never was on that journey um much in life um but there's just something about at this point in my life achieving my success right? My, my family's settled finances are good everything's settled everything that needs to be taken on that 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 lower level of the maslow hierarchy yeah the, the safety the security the food the shelter all of that is taken care of and i was going kind of stir crazy with that you know because i come from again a family of immigrants so if i don't have that pressure what am i fighting up against so yeah. when all of that was set it's like okay i still need something else so now i'm on that health journey which Should have been on it all along, but there's just something. There's a different kind of focus when you, when you realize that it's not just, you know, your, your gym teacher class saying, okay, you got to do this many reps. Okay. You got to get in shape because that's the passing grade that it is really about what you do in the gym does really ripple effect, ripple into effect into every other part of your life. So I would implore everybody to whether it's gym, whether it's eating right, whatever it may be walking. Again, those little incremental steps, take advantage of what you can control, especially for yourself, just because it pays dividends. If you take care of yourself, the dividends that you're going to see are just, they just keep coming.
1: Yes. Understood. Be CEO of your own health and be CEO of your own wealth is the way I like to. Absolutely. Throw
0: it out there. Tom, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. It's been great sharing uh, the wisdom and um, good luck and happy holidays.
0: And if there's anything that I might've missed, again, limited on time, we could have kept going. I could have dragged Tom down yet more rabbit holes with more questions. If there's anything that I might've missed that I should have asked you are curious about, please reach out to me. I'll reach out to Tom, see what kind of insights I can get back, what, what other wisdom he can share. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening and I'll talk to you soon. Take care, bye.